0: You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Major General Retired Charles Dunlop. General Dunlop is the former Deputy Judge Advocate General of the United States Air Force. He joined the Duke Law faculty in 2010, where he's now a professor of the practice of law and the executive director of the Center of Law, Ethics, and National Security. His teaching and scholarly writings focus, among many topics, on national security and the international law of armed conflict and ethical issues related to the practice of national security law. Sir, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, John. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, and I, I am one of your big fans, so it's, it's an honor for me to be here.
0: Well, thank you, sir. And you know, I'm a I'm an urban warfare guy who's had to explain to some people the law of war, especially when we start talking about urban combat, but your writings, your work is you're one of the scholars in which I go to to understand. This is about understanding. And I know that many of my listeners are, are military, but some of them are not military. So I was hoping we could start off with just, sir, could you give us a a little bit of your background, although I gave that intro, I know there's a lot of detail there that some people might know, like who you are, your military career up to this point and your current work
1: well John uh, I was in the military for thirty almost thirty five years and interestingly enough I mean unusually enough these days, I was a judge advocate the entire time, so I was a military lawyer the whole time and in the Air Force, uh, you do a little bit of all the area, practice areas, so I spent a lot of time in the military justice arena, but then I got into more leadership roles, and as I got more senior, and especially after the Gulf Wars and the wars, post-9-11 wars, I got more involved in the law of armed conflict. It was always something in the Air Force, but it became a much bigger thing. I think, in the last uh, 15, 20 years. Just a very quick story. I remember one time I was briefing some very senior officers, all-flag officers on the law of armed conflict. And I was rationalizing our adherence to it by saying, you know, it's the right thing to do, it's the moral thing to do, which of course it is. But then I was interrupted by a four-star who's said, I don't need a lecture on what's moral from a blankety-blank lawyer. I have a chaplain across the street for that job. And at that point, I realized that I really wasn't expressing how the law of armed conflict relates to operational success. And so I started thinking about what would be a good bumper sticker to talk about this, and, and I came up with the word lawfare which I thought at that time I had invented, but I really hadn't. Somebody else had used the word in the 70s. But in any event, the modern concept of it was to explain to operators how law can impact their mission success. And one way that impacts is how it shapes the narrative, which we know in modern society, especially, and particularly democracies, can influence the success or failure of a of a mission and how it's interpreted by the publics that you know democracies depend upon for their support and so i you know did did some deployments like everybody did i i am not a warfighter you know i was a lawyer the whole time but i had the opportunity to work in some chaos and be involved in the decision making on the use of force. And it really forces you to focus your mind on this particular area of the law. And so it's um, it's one of those areas of the law, which is, you know, Clausewitz says something like, everything in war is simple, but the simplest thing is hard. Correct me if I've gotten that wrong. No, that's right, sir. And I think that's very much applicable to the law of armed conflict. Yes, sir. Help me with
0: the audience is that not all military lawyers are the same. And your work in the law of armed conflict may be even unique within military lawyers. Is that right?
1: Well, that's, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, but one thing I try to emphasize with young military lawyers and civilian lawyers who are in this area is it's extremely important to understand the weapons, the tactics, the mindset, all those other things. In other words, kind of understanding the client that's why i read your work for example i read i read Daphne i've daphne's book right up on my shelf here just as a refresher she's written on underground warfare and so you have to stay very current in these systems and have the understanding to be able to communicate with the warfighter in a way that's going to be understood by him or her yes sir and
0: that actually brings me to the really the first question as a Also a student, and I really appreciate those words, sir, as a student of, you know, war is politics, war is the pursuit of political objectives. And if a military guy forgets that, maybe he needs reminding that there is a question of, can you do something, but should you do it in the pursuit of the ultimate political goal? The first general question, because I think it really applies to what is the much larger body of what we're talking about. What are the laws of war, international law of armed conflict, international humanitarian law? You know, are those three terms basically interchangeable or is there differences? Could you give us a, I know that's hard, right? So that's, I know that's a, there are many books.
1: Actually, that's, that's a really good question, John. And I do think it's confusing to a lot of people. Essentially, you're talking about the same body of law. In the U.S., Department of Defense calls it the law of war. But if you're in Europe, they call it international humanitarian law. The U.S. has never liked that terminology because it suggests that war is a humanitarian enterprise, and it really isn't. And it also can get confused with international human rights law, which is kind of like, uh, in this context, law enforcement. So the law of war is composed of treaty law, some of it going back in 1907, the Hague Conventions, but then we have the Geneva Conventions. Then we have the protocols to the Geneva Conventions, and the Protocol One, probably the most important because it speaks to war fighting, is not one that the U.S. is a party to, and we can talk about why that is, but most countries in the world are. And so when we go to fight, uh, we fight almost always in a joint context, we're dealing with countries who are parties to protocol one. But we also have what we call customary international law. This is when a custom has developed over time that nations follow because they believe that is the law of war. And much of Protocol One, for example, the U.S. follows because it interprets it as customary international law, but there are some fairly significant differences with other countries. So when you're in a joint operation, it can be something of a challenge to operate with your allied coalition forces because they are sometimes on a different page in certain aspects of the law of war. Now, with respect to Gaza and Israel, Israel is a little bit unique in that they do follow absolutely the international law of war. But their domestic law also influences their operations in ways that you might not see in this country. For example, their courts can get involved in certain uh, war fighting matters in a way that our courts don't. But there is some basics that everybody agrees on. You know, probably the cardinal principle of the law of war since the beginning of time is what we call the principle of distinction. That is, you distinguish between combatants and civilians, and you only apply force against the combatants and combatant objects. But as we'll see probably a little bit later in the discussion, that there are times when combatant objects, for example, and even civilians can find themselves lawfully targetable depending upon how the object is used or how they, how they act. And I'd say that's one of the toughest issues right now is adhering to the principle of distinction, especially if you're in a fight where the enemy isn't wearing a uniform. The enemy embeds himself among civilians. The enemy uses civilian objects to hide. And it just makes it that much more difficult to adhere to that fundamental principle of distinction.
0: Yes, sir. No, I I know this is, it's complex, um, but I've had to explain to people some of the primary principles, like you said, distinction, military necessity, proportionality, and how they're taken out of context or not even being interpreted anywhere near what they actually are.
1: Could I jump in here, John? I want to make sure people know that You've written a piece on the law of armed conflict, the law of war in this particular context of Gaza, and it is a absolutely superb summary of many of the key concepts. And it represents to me something and that these are concepts you don't have to be a lawyer to understand because you express them very well and appropriately in that particular piece. And I'm sure you can give the listeners the chapter and verse of where to find it. But it just goes to show you that these have to be internalized by the warfighter because we're not and should not be in a situation where there's going to be some lawyer leaning over uh, the warfighter's shoulder and telling him or her, you know, what, what is or is not lawful to do. We need to internalize it. And that's why we have to have discussions like this one that you're hosting today.
0: Yes, sir. No, so I really appreciate that, sir, and, I, and your note about that. So as a CNN opinion piece that if you just Google CNN opinion, John Spencer, you'll come up with this piece, right? One of the main things I want to explain, because it isn't happening as much anymore, but initially when the war started, people were saying Israel's use of force was not proportionate.
1: John, you're touching upon on my blog, Lawfire, I'm going to have a piece coming out on that particular topic because there's a misunderstanding of how proportionality works in different contexts of war fighting. For example, in what we call use of force, in other words, what would constitute an act of war? If somebody attacked the U.S. and you were responding to that particular attack, the proportionality calculation is proportional to what you were attacked. So in other words, if if it was a sniper shooting somebody on your side of the border, the response should not be take out the adversary's army. On the other hand, once you're in a conflict, the proportionality rule, which is generally accepted by virtually all law-abiding nations is, is whether or not the particular use of force will create civilian casualties that are excessive in relation to the commander's uh, warfighting objective, whatever that may be. And it can't really be reduced in a logarithm like some people think. So it would be a situation where the amount of casualties does not per se indicate some unlawfulness. For example, if you're trying to, say, kill the commander of an enemy force, who is a linchpin to the operation, who is very important. That may justify a great number of civilian casualties because the reality is to achieve the military objective, it may be necessary, one of the key elements of achieving that would be to degrade the command and control to wit that's centered in the senior leader. So that is a very important objective for commanders to achieve So it may not be excessive to cause a fair number of civilian casualties to get to that end. And I think that one of my little hobby horses, one of my concerns is that the way a lot of people interpret these rules is that they assume that the best way to protect civilians is to restrict a strike. And one of the things that we learned in Afghanistan is that we had a lot of rules of engagement that were restrictive, and General McChrystal tried to do that even further. With because the idea was that you know we could win hearts and minds if if we limited civilian casualties, and to an extent that's true. But when you look at the numbers coming out of a- Afghanistan. Throughout the whole war, two out of three civilian casualties were caused by what they called anti-government elements. So the the idea is that sometimes you can save more civilians by killing the people who are doing most of the killing of civilians, even if in a particular attack there might be significant numbers of civilian casualties. When you look strategically at the campaign as a whole, you'll see that you can actually save lives. And unfortunately, when General McChrystal restricted the airstrikes in particular in Afghanistan, you may recall that a year later when uh, he was relieved, uh, civilian casualties from airstrikes were down significantly, but overall civilian casualties were up 31%. So if the idea is to protect civilians, sometimes the answer is the use of force, not inhibiting or the use of force because we really do want to kill those doing most of the killing.
0: Yes, sir. And I, so I actually look, really look forward to that article. I, I mean, I, I believe the, the details and understanding is so important. And why I asked you really, not just because I read all your work, because of an article you wrote for Law Fire on why Israel operations in Gaza are so legally complex. And you call it one of the most legally complex operations in warfare, which is, this is the Urban Warfare Project podcast. So I have to say urban a bunch of times where I get in trouble and why that in urban environments it's so hard. I think that proportionality one, and you give in the example, in the article, a couple other factors. One, so my question is who is the arbitrator of whether even a military strike is both military necessity, proportionate, even when there are civilian casualties and ensuring that all those calculations should be done by the military. Who's the arbitrator, right? Is it you, is it me? How does that work? And when somebody just throws out the words, that was a war crime.
1: Well, I think that the way the phrase war crime has been tossed around of late has done a disservice to everyone, including the victims of war crimes. And my friend, Jeff Korn, has a a good article piece out about on that very topic. And you may know, Jeff, John. Yes, sir. But I do think that urban operations, hands down, based on my nearly 35 years of military service and another 14 years in academia, it is the most complex uh, operation in terms of complying with the law. And it's not hard to understand why, because as you know, far better than I, a lot of adversaries love cities for lots of reasons. There are heavy concrete buildings that are practically like bunkers. There are access to supplies and so forth. There's lots of things that make cities attractive. One of which is, especially if you're a callous adversary who doesn't care really about civilian casualties, you can wage what I call lawfare against your law-abiding opponent by burrowing into the civilian community or burrowing under the civilian community is what we see in Gaza, because you know that your opponent, your law-abiding opponent, has to go through those civilian objects and sometimes those civilians to get at you. And so they try to use that, this kind of a psychological warfare, political warfare, lawfare, if you will, to try to inhibit and form this legal bubble around themselves, a pseudo-legal bubble around themselves so that they can accuse those who are trying to get at them of war crimes, even though it's not a war crime. Because the fact of the matter is, the law anticipates and tolerates civilian casualties, as long as they're not excessive in relation to the anticipated military gain. Of course, you can only target military objectives, you can only target combatants to include civilians who are directly participating in hostilities, but you obviously can't target civilians, even though you may know in your otherwise lawful attack, you're tragically going to, it's going to cost civilian lives, even if you know that in advance.
0: Yes, sir. You give some examples where even the calculation of what is lawful or what is not and to be you know, evidence-based in investigation, you mentioned a couple of things in the article, like the fact that determination of the value of the target and the very survival of a state, so an existential threat, how does that factor in, in interpreting the law, what we see going on in Israel and Gaza?
1: Right, John. And I, I should alert your listeners, this is controversial, This is my view that when you're trying to calculate what the value is of your anticipated military gain, when the adversary, when the enemy has made it his war aim, not just to defeat you on the battlefield, not just to capture your land, but to literally destroy not just your state, but the physical society, your entire people's. That is a very important military gain that the commander is trying to achieve in the sense of to block that from happening. So when the stakes are that high, then civilian casualties, in my judgment, can be tolerated, don't become excessive in a way that maybe if you're in another kind of conflict and the issue was you know, just whether or not this island or that island is is going to be one country or another. That those stakes aren't as high as the very existence of a nation or the very existence of a people. That is a very high stake. And so that's going to frame the calculation. Now, let me add this. It's still required that the commander take all feasible feasible steps to try to limit and mitigate the harm to civilians. You can only target proper military objectives. You can't target civilians or civilian objects. But when you're making that calculation as to what is excessive, I believe the larger context of a particular conflict is relevant to that calculation. And, you know, the International Court of Justice. It's obviously very different, and, and I'm not suggesting nuclear weapons are involved in this conflict at all. But when they gave their advisory opinion on nuclear weapons, they went about 400 and some pages, the judges did, saying how horrible nuclear weapons were and how they, it would always be excessive and suggesting that. But at the end of the day, they could not say that where the survival of the state was at stake, they could not say that the threat or use of nuclear weapons violated international law. it's an advisory opinion from back in 1986, I think, off the top of my head, but I think it gives you a context how international law does appreciate that there can be stakes that are so important that tragically enough, some people are gonna be unintended Victims of the use of force, even if you anticipate that that's going to happen and know it's going to happen.
0: Yes, sir. So, how does the law factor in non state actors or those? Some people will say, well, neither parties are a part of the Rome Statute, signatures to the International Criminal Court. How does the law interpret a conflict like this when some people argue who must, who must not? the application of the use of force, does the law of war apply no matter what?
1: Well, that's a very good question because you have to have an armed conflict before the law of war would apply. And way back in the dawn of man, being a little facetious there, at one point it was only thought that the law of war applied between nation states. I would say that since 9-11 especially, the law of war applies in what we call non-international armed conflicts. In other words, an armed conflict between a nation state and another entity, which is not a nation state. It doesn't mean that every time you go against some armed group, you know, mafia or something like that, that the law of war applies. There has to be a certain scale and a certain effects for the conflict to be considered an armed conflict. And, And that is, a fact-specific judgment. So once you have that, you do have the law of war apply between nation-states and non-state actors, particularly whereas here they've organized themselves into an armed group which is engaged in continuous combat operations against the nation-state, in this case Israel. And I should uh, go back and answer your question, who makes the judgments? Well, the law of war ultimately places the responsibility, much responsibility on the commander. And the commander will be judged by what is a reasonable action for someone in that situation, in the same or similar situation. Did that person act reasonably? Did they take reasonable steps to mitigate the harm to civilians? Did they take what they call constant care? You'll see that phraseology, constant care to try to mitigate the effects on civilians. And one thing I would like to note, because you hear this a lot, in the law of war, there's no such thing, You don't. there's no such thing as the phrase, quote unquote, innocent civilians. Civilians are entitled to protected status under the law of war, even if they are pretty loathsome people. And they may be actual criminals, but they may not have participated in the conflict in a way that would make them lawfully targetable under the law of war. They may be guilty of other crimes. They may be uh, not nice people, or, and they may be very supportive of the adversary's military arm, but they aren't necessarily targetable simply for the, those reasons. And I was concerned because even uh, the Secretary of Defense in coming out with their new process civilian harm mitigation talked about innocent civilians. Well, that sort of suggests, and John, you know how it is with troops. If you say something like innocent civilians, I can easily see how that would conjure up in the mind of the troop. Well, there's innocent civilians and there's guilty civilians. And guilty civilians, I guess we can can go after. And there really is, that's not the way the distinction is done in the law of war.
0: Yes, sir. I actually like to stick to, I 100% agree. I I like to stick to combatant, non-combatant, which I I hope isn't in in accordance with the law of war.
1: Yeah, sometimes we call them unlawful combatants. Sometimes we call them, but I think your shorthand is a good way, especially when you're trying to convey to the public who may not be familiar with all the, the niceties. And you approached that
0: in the article, and I really appreciated that, especially when we're talking about dense urban areas especially when we're talking about combatants that don't follow the laws of war and distinguish themselves with some type of marking. If, you, if you've if you seen the Ukraine-Russia war, the Ukrainians, even if they were non-military, but clearly engaging in hostilities, identified themselves with like a yellow band or a blue band around their arm. In your article, you say, who is targetable? Could you go into that?
1: Yeah. People who are targetable, in, and let's go straight to the non-international armed conflict, the people that you know are targetable are members of the armed force. It could be the nation state's armed force or the non-state actor's armed force. And who is a member of that non-state actor's armed force is a matter of some dispute. But let's let's say those who are engaged in constant combat operation. And the interesting thing about it is under the law of war, once you are in one of those groups, you can be targeted based on your status as being a member. In other words, you can be attacked no matter what you're doing, where you are. You know, if you're sleeping unarmed in a hotel room, in theory, you are subject to attack. You can be attacked. And there's no, under the law of war, unlike international human rights law, there's no requirement to try to capture somebody first. You can kill them as the first recourse. Now, where it gets... Very complicated is when there are people who may not be a member of that non-state actor, armed group, or terrorist organization, but nevertheless are doing things that are aiding that organization. So it's possible that people can step over the line and become targetable. And an example is if somebody serves as a lookout. That's right in the Department of Defense Law of War. Uh, manual, as an example of the kind of activity that is directly involving someone in in armed conflict. And there are other things that they can be doing. If, If you are building an IED, you're directly participating. But at the same time, just to show you how complicated it is, if you're in a munitions factory back in, you know, country X, that's not sufficiently direct Involvement to make you directly targetable. Your factory is targetable, but not you personally. Whereas the IED maker who's going to in place that in the next day or so, then you are directly participating. If you're carrying ammunition to the front line and so forth, that can be direct participation. And obviously, if you're planning, organizing, and certainly if you're carrying a weapon, And so forth, you're directly participating, even if you're not formally a member of the organized armed group or the army on the other side, you know, the the traditional army. So there's an aperture there. Now, here's where the challenge comes in. Here's where the dispute comes in. When does that end? If you look at the International Committee of the Red Cross, they say, well, as soon as they finish doing that act, they go back to being protected civilians the us is not un, unless they're a member of the organized armed group the us does not endorse the you know farmer by day insurgent by night the the revolving door in other words the us takes a broader view and requires more affirmative action to terminate that relationship once the actor becomes involved with direct participation so in other words there's lots of people more than maybe the number who are members of the terrorist organization who may be directly targetable in a particular situation, depending upon the acts that they do and direct uh, support the hostilities. And that's what makes it complicated because you know, the soldiers are looking at, at people who you know, are dressed as civilians, act like civilians, but they may be performing some function that makes them lawfully targetable, but trying to make that determination under the stress and chaos of combat, as you know, is extremely difficult. You're asking the soldier to make a uh, practically a judicial determination in the instant before he or she himself becomes targeted.
0: Yes, sir. And I, I mean, one of my passions to even understand urban warfare is having been in those situations when you're asking soldiers to make that call, and have like in, in our podcast with like the second battle of Fallujah, which is a great example of fantastic, yes. And then General Rainey, now four star General Rainey, that said that you can have anything you want in support of your mission as the main effort penetrating into this contested urban environment. What do you need? And he asked for a lawyer. He asked for a, a military lawyer at his side to help make more informed, I think, decisions on the complexities of situations like this where what can you do? What should you do? It becomes very complex.
1: I appreciate that. And I would just suggest to all the the commanders out there and budding commanders who I hope are listening to your podcast, you know, you need to pick your lawyer like you pick your ops officer or your intel officer. You need somebody who really knows your mission, your weapons, your tactics, the enemy's weapons, the enemy's tactics, and everything else. Because Learning the law is one thing. There are a lot of people, especially in academia, that'll shock you, John, that are very conversant with the law, but they can't grasp how it plays with the facts. In other words, in a sense, the soldier is the lawyer's client in this context. And so you have to understand the client's business. That's why a young JAG officer right now needs to be reading your stuff. Daphne stuff really getting smart on urban warfare and the challenges and so forth as much as you know any commander because if you don't understand that part of it you're never going to give legal advice that a is going to be right or b is going to be respected by the warfighter who needs it because John you probably know this as soon as a warfighter gets the perception that his legal officer really doesn't know what Warfighting is and and doesn't seem to have you know that at least that working knowledge. They turn them off. I mean, they'll comply with the law, but they're not going to have the influence that you might hope that they would have, and help that the commander needs in these complicated situations. Because a lot of this requires, as you say, split second judgments. Now, I will tell you that as a matter of international law you don't judge the lawfulness by what happens afterwards or what the result is. You judge it by what the intent and the understanding was when the strike was made or the operation began. Because lots of things can happen in the course of a conflict. You know, the classic came out of Kosovo where they launch a weapon at a bridge and as the weapons in flight A train comes across the darn thing, a passenger train, and of course it gets hit. You know, they didn't know that. So it wasn't, you know, quote unquote, a war crime of attacking a train because it wasn't reasonably understood that that was going to be within the scope of this otherwise lawful target.
0: Yes, sir. I I can't agree more. Even in when people, this is like you said, i I found even academically there's now a lot of experts in urban warfare and experts in the law of armed conflict that I didn't know existed but <laughs> that's a separate topic and I think a good for instance right people like mental models, people like those examples so we know that there's protected populations and there are distinctions between who is targetable but what about protected sites because in dense urban areas there are lots of places that are have protected status and actually layers of protected status like Hospitals, churches, mosques, schools, infrastructure, things like that. And, and how does that apply what we're seeing in, of course, in Israel and Gaza, where things like hospital, the protection of a hospital comes into play?
1: Well, I think what the fact of the matter is, is that a protected object can become a lawful military target. Now, even if it is a lawful military target, if it's being used for military purposes, you still have to go through the proportionality analysis. So, you're, you know, the first threshold is it a lawful target? It is. Now, can you attack it with this weapon where you anticipate this level of harm to the civilian object or the civilians? Then you have to make that determination. Is that excessive in relation to what you're trying, the proper military objective that you're? trying to accomplish. But in some instances, you know, the object can be so intertwined with, a protected object can become so intertwined with the enemy's military activity that you really aren't going to be able to be very discreet and just attack that portion of it that's being used for military purposes. And then you have other things like infrastructure. You know, historically, The electricity grid was something in the Air Force they always attacked because it has such, you know, it's so embedded in the the operations of modern military forces that you really can't separate it. Now, you try to take into account the effect that it's going to have on civilians, but sometimes it will be nevertheless appropriately attacked. It doesn't mean that you don't Try to mitigate that in some way, but sometimes you simply can't do it. You have to take it out. Now you might remember in the second, first Gulf War, we did go after the electrical halls, but in the second Gulf War, you try to go after the nodes that would be feeding a military installation, as opposed to the generation plant and things like that. So there are some things you can do if you have a keen enough understanding of the mechanics and the engineering of a particular object but when it, it's particularly difficult when an adversary is purposely trying to use protected objects to protect himself the object is what is supposed to be protected you know the church or the the mosque or the synagogue or whatever it is but it's not supposed to be become you know a shield for combatants to hide behind Yet we see that ever more frequently in today's conflicts.
0: Yes, sir. And that's why, again, my passion is not just to show people that war is increasingly more frequently being pulled into urban areas. There's a a podcast about it and why, but, and then why does that make it more complex? I have people argue to me that urban warfare is no more complex than jungle warfare, things like that. And, And I strongly disagree, such as in the legal application of the use of force.
1: John, you're absolutely right. I understand what they what they mean about jungle warfare being complicated. But what they're omitting there, they need to go back and read Clausewitz again and the political nature of war. Even though Clausewitz said some terrible things about international law, but he didn't really understand international law. That law is really an expression of politics. But be that as it may, in today's conflicts with the super empowerment, information technologies and so forth, you have to pay attention to the legal aspects because it's so intimately connected with the narrative that democracies and the world really uh, will judge what you are doing. And that will be a measure of the support that you get that is necessary for the kind of success you want at the end of the day in the use of force. And I don't care what anybody says, Urban warfare is the most complex. It's most complex from a purely military aspect, but it's also complex from the integral political aspect of an armed conflict. There's no question about that.
0: Sir, I'll probably cut that clip, and and that's pretty much a mic drop, but (laughs) I also want to ask you, since, like you said, since Clausewitz, since Sun Tzu, since all the great military theorists, the law has changed. It's not that some people believe that the law started after World War II. No, the laws of wars, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, are very old. Yes, they've been added to. We've, there's been conventions. There's been protocols. There's been a customary agreements, things like that. Does the law change, and how does that increase the difficulty of use of military force in densely populated urban areas?
1: Yes, the law of armed conflict does evolve. The law of war does evolve. And it started with Nuremberg where individual Nazis were held accountable for war crimes, which was new at the time. And the tribunal addressed that and they made that point that the law evolves to meet the needs of modern societies and, and modern nations. So we do have laws, but I would suggest that they don't inhibit the proper application Of the use of force, and it doesn't try to level the battlefield between one adversary and another. It has the same application to both sides, and it doesn't matter who was right or who was wrong. In other words, what we call the jus ad bellum, the reason for going to war, doesn't impact how you conduct the war. You still have to conduct it in a lawful way. But I will tell you in my many years, I never saw rules of engagement, for example, that were not in some way stricter than what the law of war would require. The law of war is actually pretty reasonable, but it's also very general, so it does require interpretation. It does require good faith application. It does require reasonableness by uh, commanders and those exercising force, but it does evolve. Now, how my advocacy is always to take our fundamentals and apply them to the new situation. And in doing that, you may evolve norms of how you apply, for example, the rule of distinction in an urban setting. So there may be things that will become norms of, of how you do things in a particular situation without fundamentally trying to add a whole new set of laws. I do think that one thing that we're going to be seeing even more of, it's always existed in warfare, but we're going to see even more of, is the taking of hostages. You know, the sad part about it is there will be adversaries out there who will say that this is a good thing for them, meaning taking hostages gives them something that they can manipulate and they can use, even though it's against all law of war, international law, completely against the taking of hostages. But I think that there are some people who are going to see taking of hostages as an opportunity to make them human shields, to influence world opinion in some way. So I think that's a feature that we're going to see even more of. I think we're going to see even more urban warfare, especially depending on how the the Gaza operation turns out.
0: Yes, sir. I could do this for a long time. And, and I always say, that's my last question. That's the last one I'm going to ask. I have two more. Okay. One is I agree with you on hostages. I agree with you on even increasing the non-state actors using the urban environments and trying to do lawfare. But does it matter if your combatant doesn't follow the law of war?
1: I think it does because I think, I very much think it, it matters because for one thing, democracies are not going to support an otherwise lawful and proper objective if they think their military is acting in an unconscionable, illegal way. So from a very practical point of view, adherence to the law of war is important to achieve that political end, and particularly for rule of law democracies. The other part of it is and I think that the Russians are seeing this during World War II on the Eastern Front when the Nazis told the Wehrmacht even that they basically, I think it was the partisan order where they could basically kill anybody they, they wanted. And even though Wehrmacht knew that that was in violation of what had then been understood as the law of war. And they ended up getting a mindset of the criminalization of warfare, where they thought there were no rules. And that came back against the Nazis in the sense of trying to keep troops on the front line when the the Russians were overwhelming them. And they ended up having to court-martial these, you know, summary field court-martials and executing 11,000 of their own soldiers just to keep them in the field. So once you change the mindset of a soldier who then thinks there are no rules. Well, one of those rules of staying with his unit also goes out the window. So you do something to the psychology and the discipline of the soldiers that you need for combat success. And I think if you look at the indiscipline of the Russians in Ukraine, one of the reasons for their operational failure was this culture of indiscipline, of just doing anything they wanted? Often that was war crimes, also bled into eroding their operational effectiveness. That's Dunlap's theory, anyway. So there are two, I think, really big reasons for adhering to the rule of law, even if the other guy doesn't. I think we're beyond that. We used to argue that, well, you know, we need to obey the law of war because then the you know, the other guy will obey the law of war and and we'll, and that that just doesn't exist in my mind in the 21st century conflicts we're seeing. So we have to have these other reasons, but I think these other reasons are actually more powerful than maybe that original one.
0: Yes, sir. And all full disclaimers, that was a question not saying I believe you didn't. I, I firmly believe that the law of war should be applied to all sides, It doesn't change the use of force and the rules and anything for the one side if the other side is not following them. But you just gave an amazing example of why it's above even the the law of war, the ability to achieve the political goal. If you you don't, I personally think that, yes, of, of course, you should still follow the law and you will still be held accountable even if the other side is not. Both sides have the legal obligation to follow it. Sir, last question is, where could a military officer or any listener of this podcast go to learn more about the law of war and especially about the complexities of its application in urban warfare?
1: Well, I'll be honest with you, John. I'd like to say that I hope that they take a look at my blog, Law Fire, not Lawfare, law Fire. but they also need to read your work. I think the Modern War Institute, there's so much good work being done in urban warfare, I don't think that there's any place on the planet where you can go and get more information, not just about the law of war, but about urban warfare in general. And one of the things that I like about your work is that you do incorporate the importance of the law of war, because I think you and other warfighters understand that it's a practical necessity for rule of law democracies and and others who, who really care about doing the right thing because you need those kinds of people in order to be successful in the operation and the campaign. You know, the DoD Law of War Manual, honestly, it's 1,200 pages. Nobody but the JAG officers are, are going to read it. The Army does have a scaled-down version for commanders, which is just generally focus on the law of land warfare. But I would suggest that there is a value in just spooling up on the basics and then looking for these specialist articles and, and expertise to fine tune the knowledge that you would need in these urban settings. And I know that the Army JAG Corps is really starting to focus on this because they realize that this is going to be the future for, you know, we're not going to see this is hardly the end. I think it's sadly and tragically, it's only the beginning of more urban warfare settings and more or urban warfare conflicts. And I'm not particularly proud to say that at one point I thought, well, maybe we can, you know, avoid urban warfare by circling the cities and not putting them under siege in the classic sense, but controlling access. And eventually you'd filter out the bad guys and you could have strikes, you know, selective strikes. But I'm not so sure that that kind of relatively time-consuming approach will work in the future. So I think as we develop these new techniques, I would recommend that you get a knowledgeable, that there be a knowledgeable, energetic lawyer involved advising the warfighters as they continue to develop, you know, more TTPs to address these emerging challenges of urban warfare. And especially if I was to pick one thing out, the whole, this whole idea of deeply buried tunnels, you know, we're not just talking about six feet under, we're talking deeply buried tunnels, which is a very, difficult in my mind anyway, military problem, but you've forgotten more about this topic than I ever knew. So I'll defer to you on that.
0: I don't know about that, sir, but I appreciate it. And I highly recommend your blog, website, Law Fire. I read it often because of these individual topics that are so complex. I've witnessed a division level JAG be pushed on, okay, let's talk about this in the setting of an urban warfare. Let's let's educate other people. He knows who he is. And Like you said, the avoid and bypass, for many reasons, is not a part of this. And understanding at this level, like, sir, I really appreciate your time. It really a a huge honor.
1: Well, John, it's been an honor for me, and I really appreciate what you're doing. You're a voice out there that has both the expertise and the, I think, aggressive warfighting sense, but also... The sense of honor and personal discipline that is necessary if we're going to, you know, have the kinds of soldiers who will succeed in this extremely difficult environment.
0: Yes, sir. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out IndieWise's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.